Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. Um, and so we are, this is the afternoon. Uh, which, which is unusual which for is us. Which is unusual. We went to the um, True Blessings Luncheon in support of um, the Men's Shelter and Urban Ministry Center Ministries. And we are at the seminary illegally recording, so <laughs> we love to do that. And we are not asking permission, <laughs> but uh, we'll say sorry if they we tell us We are rebels that way. Um, so what is astonishing you this week, my friend? Well, you know, we do this work of remissioning, transformation, Reformation? church, renewal, however you want to name it. And, you know, this work requires a lot of risk-taking, which requires a lot of prayer. And so I just want to acknowledge that you, a couple of weeks ago on our walk, gave me some really good advice. Oh, I love this. I know. I love where this yeah, is going. Yes. <laughs> Say um, more. You know, I have had this vision for some time at Dorida of really uh, kind of planting a church within a church. I've had this vision of something called Greenhouse Community Church and... Um, the elders have been very faithful over the past year, working really hard to um, work on our DNA, our mission and core values. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're at a place where we're beginning to talk about what's next. And so you and I were talking about that a couple of weeks ago on our walk. And you said, well, here's what I think you need to do. I think you need to pray. And I think you need to find some people who will pray for this particular vision. If it's from God, it'll you know, the doors mm -hmm. will open. And so... You're right. Um, I, first of all, just went and asked God for some people to mm -hmm. pray with me and to pray uh, for what's next for our congregation. And um, immediately, one of the elders came to mind, and I called her. And she said, you know what? It's so funny that you should call me mm -hmm. because I was just thinking that every Wednesday, I should just go to the church sanctuary and pray. Just pray for the church and pray for you and pray for whatever God wants to do in this ministry. Okay, wow, that's pretty astonishing. And then maybe two days later, uh, there's a wonderful woman uh, in our neighborhood. She's not a member of our congregation, not a part of our church community. Uh, but we monthly do this bread ministry where we go through the neighborhood knocking on doors and offering people loaves of bread uh, saying that Jesus is the bread of life. It's just a small token of the way we um, express our care and love for mm -hmm. our neighborhood. And so we met this wonderful woman named Cece, and uh, Cece is a second career person. She's currently a theological student. And uh, I said to her, when we met her at her house, if you ever need anything from me, feel free to give me a call. And I left her my number. Well, last week... Um, Sunday before last, I get a text early in the morning. Uh, and she Sunday said, Yes, a Sunday no. morning text. And she said, Well, remember when you said if I ever needed anything? And I thought, Oh no, this is going to be huge because mm -hmm. it's a Sunday morning text. And she said, Well, uh, I'm in this theology class. Could I talk to you about some of these, th these things? I'm like, Can you? That's right up my alley, right? Yeah. And so, um, 
in the middle of talking about uh, her class and theology and what she wants to do in terms of ministry, uh, she said to me, you know, I'm really into prayer. I, I, prayer ministry is my ministry. I thought, <laughs> I said to her, well, I've got this thing. Would, would, you, would you consider praying for us in this, uh, in this season about what God would have this church do next? And her eyes just lit up mm-hmm. and was like, would I? Like, like that's my jam. Mm-hmm. Of course I would pray. Mm-hmm. And then on Sunday, middle of the service, she walks in. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, if I'm going to pray for you, I need to see what's up. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just astonished by the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing this together. And I know it's just the beginning, but again, and I know uh, someone might be saying, well, duh, preacher, prayer. <laughs> yeah. Prayers availeth much, right? Well, I mean, but it, it's so true that um, it, it's this constant temptation to try to do this work in the way that a reasonable person would do the work of, say, starting a school or starting a small business. And, and I mean, what we do is spiritual work. And so we need to use the tools of um, tools of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit. Absolutely. And, but, I mean, it, it just is difficult because we live in a culture that values effort and, um, you know, qualifications and mm-hmm. institutions. And so... It's so it's so easy to fall into the trap of if I don't have these financial resources, if I don't have this institutional mandate or permission, if I don't have these you know visible um, concrete resources, then it can't be done. Which I mean, again, it, it it is very obvious to say, you know, of course that's not the witness of Scripture, but it, but it's hard. I mean, even for a pastor, especially you know, pastors like you and I, who we have been blessed mm. to have our ministries equipped and empowered by institutions, right? I mean, we became Presbyterian pastors, and as part of that formation, institutions were a part of that process all the way. Churches that sponsored us, and presbyteries that you know created this process that led us through it, and seminary institutions that gave us really valuable insight and training and knowledge that we could not have gotten for ourselves, right? So in a lot of ways, our ministry has always been mediated through institutions, which is great until you start to feel like God is limited by the limits of the institutions, right? And it's that, you know, we are so stuck in a moment of all all or nothing thinking, right? And so often people are like, no, 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 institutions are terrible (laughs) or no, no, institutions are are the limits of the spirit, and neither of those are true. That's like right. we, it's not that we don't want to work with or through institutions or or minister through institutions, but also to be able to say, yeah, God does not need you know the permission or the resources of any institution which bears the name the label Christian on it. And so there are times when, as the local church, we have to go first, um, and as the leaders of the local church. We, we have, have to, to go, go first. first, and that's hard because we weren't we were not trained to do that. And then we have brothers and sisters in other parts of the body of Christ, which have very little institutional strength in them that would say, you know, duh, idiots, welcome yeah. to mm-hmm. the reality. And again, you know, it's not it's not a handicap to have institutional to have been blessed by institutions until it is <laughs> until you until you begin to feel like God's reality is defined by them, and and they're not. So I am a you know, I mean, you and I lead an institution, and we 
that's what we're trying to do is, right. is create a spirit-filled institution. But it just, yeah, it's a really interesting sort of paradox to realize. And we were sort of talking on the walk here about how often, you know, we sort of um, are, are thinking through our relationship with the denominational institutions and like, what does it mean to be a faithful part, not only of our local congregations, but of the PCUSA, the Presbytery, the national level, and what does that look like? And I mean, I think mainly it looks like being wary of dualistic thinking, right? Being wary of feeling like anything that God is doing, God is doing through the structure. And so we better get on board with whatever the most powerful voices in the structure are doing because they speak for God. That's not healthy or holy or wise. And it also doesn't look like saying God is doing nothing through this right. institution and God has, I mean, you know, that's, and just spending all our time reacting against it or denouncing it, that's not healthy or holy either. It's about saying, you know, this is an institution and it is both good and flawed and we can love it and serve it and also speak truth to it, but never let ourselves off the hook by thinking oh, I'm not doing X because the institution is doing Y. No, no. Like, if God is calling us to do something, then there there is no program or initiative or lack at any institutional level that's stopping us. Like, we don't, you know, it's not that easy. It's not, um, so, yeah. yeah, I think that's great. Well, I'm glad that... For once, how long we've been, we've literally been making this podcast for more than a year, and I'm pretty sure this is the first time. Wait, In is fact, this? I don't know who cares. But just as we were walking down the hall to make this podcast, you were like, "Oh, I know what we were talking. What are we going to say about the I'm astonished segment?" And you were like, "Oh, I actually was astonished by you." And I was like, "Okay, I'm actually not offended." No, your <laughs> advice was really good, and it was timely. No, it's it's just good. I mean, it is. And a, we ha- we have to remind ourselves that as spiritual leaders, we must. Do spiritual we work must and make that spirit. a priority. Yeah. Right? Well, and I think it is. I mean, what's ironic about this is that advice is much more likely to come from you to me, well, right? So no, no, no. I mean, and I say that only to say that sometimes there are things that that we hold true that we just need people to remind us of. Absolutely. Right. Like mm-hmm. yes. So that's really good. So what's astonishing you? Um, well, yesterday um, I was. Um, home and was able to um, spend some time doing some reading and meditating and praying, which is good. And um, as part of that process, I really felt, and I'm trying to be more open to considering that sometimes when I'm in a posture of prayer, um, that the random thoughts that come into my head just may be coming from the Lord. Might, hmm. might, might, might not, may but not they be may. Random. <laughs> um, and so I really was thinking that I, I have some old journals that I have had um, since whenever, bef- before college, seminary. And so I um, just thought that I might be um, led to go and pick up and look through one of these old journals. And so I was, and it was, it was really interesting, A, to see um, the continuity of my prayer life, which is <laughs> sort of always frenzied desperation, but um, but just how sort of the same things that I continually pray for now are the things that I was praying for then, um, you know, praying for the wisdom to be faithful and the grace to s- serve my communities faithful and faithfully. And um, But I was also just astonished. We talk a lot um, 
I mean, we're recording this in the seminary right now, and we talk about the interesting role um, that our seminaries, um, and a seminary is a graduate-level institution that trains pastors for ministry. And in the Presbyterian Church USA, um, our seminaries um, are, are, I mean, I think almost entirely staffed by professors who do not serve local churches, right? I think that's fair. Right. Now, I think we are sitting at Union Satellite Campus here in Charlotte, and the current head of this institution is Richard Boyce, who actually is the anomaly because he was a local pastor for for decades um, and and was doing, but he is by far the exception that proves the rule. Um, And so it's interesting to be formed for ministry um, in a seminary where most of the people who are your teachers are not doing the work that they are forming you to do. And I should say, that's one of the things that a lot of people think is very wrong with many mainline seminaries, right? That is not the case for um, the Christian church in general. Um, but I, I, and I had been thinking a lot lately about sort of how frustrating that disconnect is for me, even as a local pastor, to realize that, you know, seminaries are not really interested or engaging local church work and often um, when I'm here, (laughs) I'm here once a week. I mean, I love having this resource here for sermon preparation. And when I'm here in the library, sometimes people will see me and they'll be like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I mean, my job, right? I don't don't know why this is such a surprise. But anyway, and and what was interesting is I, I found an old journal entry that I had written when I was living in Boston, and it was just astonishing to me how totally, um, how totally the same it is that I had forgotten that I felt this way then too, that, uh, this was after I had graduated, but I had gone back to seminary because I was working as a TA, um, in a new Testament class for a professor that I really, really liked and respected. Um, and I was just doing the work because I enjoyed, I mean, enjoyed teaching and I enjoyed having access to her as a professor and was kind of discerning whether I wanted to go back and do PhD work kind of, but, but anyway, the long and the short of it is I was not being paid to do it. I was just doing it. And so she had taken me out for lunch and I was writing about this in this journal entry. And she was saying how much she admired me doing the work without being paid for it. And I said to her, well, you know, my work in the local church is so, and I kind of trailed off like, and she said, um, um, banal or mindless. You know, I was like, it's so interesting to me that that's your assumption about the work that I'm doing. Because what I had been going to say to her was, and I was serving in this urban context and in um, the heart of Boston in this multi-ethnic community that was just a, just this holy challenging gift of a place um, that just, you know, broke me every day and gifted me every day. And it was just um, really, you know, the the vision that I had to do the work that God does now at the Grove came because I had seen it done. I'd been privileged to be a part of this community, so I knew it was possible. Anyway, and I had been going to say to her, like, my work in the local church is so challenging. Like, it's so hard and it's so heartbreaking and it's so 
you know, every day to show up and just not know what's going to happen and not know how to respond. And, you know, you don't get a grade, right? Mm. Like nobody comes up to you and was like, that was an A, (laughs) good job. Or that was a C and here's what you need to do. I mean, it's just so challenging and overwhelming that to spend a morning once a week, you know, in this academic setting was so refreshing. It was so easy. It was so um, simple yeah. and, you know, just, it, and, and the stakes, frankly, were so low. Right. Yes. And so I was just thinking like, and I was writing this journal entry, like, gosh, I mean, it's really, I mean, at the time I just was kind of marveling at like, how, how do you not, how do you not see this? Like, how do you not see, I get that different people are called to different things and that's great, mm. but how do you not see how holy and beautiful and important and challenging this work is, and and how are you operating with this assumption that the work that you do in the academy is challenging and difficult, and the work that I do in the local church is mindless. mindless. And I, you know, and I've never been in a situation where there's been enough relational equity where people have said it to me that clearly. Um, but I mean, it's often what I experience when I talk to people in the academy professors, there's just a deep disconnect, which leads to um, a lack of respect that I'm sure probably goes both ways. Mm. Um, so I, but I mean, I just am astonished at how, at how disconnected these institutions have become and, and what that says about the ability to raise up leaders who can grow healthy, vital local churches if the people who are not only, because obviously presbyteries train local church leaders as well, but if people who are primary crucibles and formative influences on these leaders don't understand the local church as a relevant, engaging, passionate, challenging, mm. you know, worthy way to spend your life. So anyway, I was just astonished to run across that journal entry and think, oh, <laughs> apparently I've been having this internal conflict for close to 20 years. I wish you had that journal entry with you. Well. Do you? I mean, on me? No. Oh, no. No. No, no. No, no. Well, just as a quick response, one of the things I really appreciate about our friendship is, you know, we're, we're both two pastors who love the church for all of its challenges. We love this work. It's more than a job. Um, um, We've both been in settings with other pastors where um, it was all about complaining and what was Mm -hmm. wrong with the church. And it is nice to uh, be in relationship with someone that just sees how important and relevant and beautiful the local church is and and powerful. Um, We were saying last week on this podcast about the importance of relationships and how Uh, They can be really transformative to whole neighborhoods and even our society. Mm -hmm. But other institutions just miss the importance of a local church. And so. Well, and I think a lot of times we have other institutions that just assume that the local church will always be around, mm-hmm. right? And and that's a crazy assumption to make, particularly if we have local churches that aren't interested in reaching out in healthy and holy ways to invite people in and to share um, the life that we have together in Jesus. Like, it's a crazy, it, it's, it makes no sense to assume that local churches will always be there um, 
to be a place, not the only place, but to be a place and a context within which the Holy Spirit can do, you know, um, transformational work, conversion work, new life, second birth work, which we believe in. And I mean, it was interesting because we were at that luncheon today about the ministry of Urban Ministry Center and the men's shelter. And it was interesting when they were talking about the power of their ministry they, they were naming sort of the practicalities that, yes, we are a place where people can sleep and we're a place where people can get job training and we're a place where people can get, can get um, you know, rehabilitation for addiction. But what they were saying is we're a place where somebody walks in and we will greet yes. them where they are yes. and love them as they are and invite, not compel, but invite them um, in into a... a to an opportunity to change, right? Yes. Not require it, but invite. Well, and I loved how they framed it. Someone's first story and their second mm-hmm. story. And um, and even uh, the guy who got up to speak and said, well, I'm going to tell you about my first story and about my second story. And it was really beautiful. Right, I mean, and that is what... That is what our churches should be full of people yes. who can tell the story of yes. this is who I was and yes. this is who I am in Jesus. And I and I know that people have a problem when they say, well, I, I mean, which me too, I was born into a believing family or I was baptized as an infant. Well, me too. But it doesn't matter because there, we should always be turning to Jesus and saying, what are you calling me to do right now? Here's my yes. life now. And, and if we're yes. really making that sincere offer to Jesus, then Jesus is going to keep converting us and keep growing us and And, keep giving us new life. And that's really challenging for uh, many in our mainline context because they think if you have that kind of before and after story, it means that... um, You you were bad and now you're good. Yes. And it's got to be some kind of dramatic conversion story. And when I... When I got to Dorita Church, I met with anyone and everyone that would meet with me, and I asked them the same questions. And one of those questions was, tell me how you came to faith in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so many folks, wonderful, uh, Jesus-loving people, would say, well, it's it's not that exciting. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, tell me. And I said, well, I was you know, born to Christian parents, baptized as an infant, and then they would say things like, you know, I drifted away as a teenager, young adult, and then came back at some uh, revival evangelistic event. I'm like, what do you mean boring? Mm-hmm, <laughs> like, this mm-hmm. is, it's a great story. Well, and I also think it's interesting sometimes when we ask people that story and then you people will tell back the story of how they came back to be connected to the particular church that they're mm-hmm. a part of or the particular institution. And I, I want to gently but firmly press and say, okay... And that is great. And loving a church or being committed to a church is not the same thing mm-hmm. as loving and being committed to Jesus. It's not, they're not diametrically opposed by any means. They're right? not the same. But they're not the same. And so if the story of you and God is the story of you and a church, oh, that's good. Then then we need to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. We need to lean into that. We need to be really brave mm-hmm. and say, what, is, what does that mean? Because God doesn't want to relate to you through an institution. In fact, there was a whole reformation about that. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's not what we believe. We, we believe that God um, you know, comes down to born incarnate and at a particular place and time and now dwells within us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe in that Jesus Christ gives us unmediated relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if that's a doctrine you assent to, but not a reality 
that you can begin to tell a story about, what that means is, wow, if you already love God without that, how much more goodness, Mm. how much more life is waiting for you? It's not like you're doing it wrong, you're bad, you should be ashamed of yourself. It's about like, wow, there's so much more for you. There's There's so much more for you. And, and, And that's not... To say you're behind and other people are ahead because we're we're all just on the grace dole, right? Yeah, so you right. don't need to feel that's ashamed. Right. You don't need to feel bad. Yeah. You just need to know there's so much more, which is great because we can be such bolder, braver, more faithful members of our local church, of our institution, when our primary relationship is with God yes. and not through that yes. institution, right? Yes. And so, you know, that's... And at the end of the day... That is what we're offering to the world. We're offering Jesus and right. the good news not, of Jesus. Not a church. Yes. Which, yeah. And so that I did love that idea of like, wow, if the Urban Ministry Center and if the men's shelter are framing their work as first story, second work, I mean, how much more yeah. should we be? And yeah. saying to everybody in the congregation, like, well, you should have a story. We sing it. Mm-hmm. I once was lost but now I'm found, was right. blind, but now I see. We, we sing it, but we have a hard time putting ourselves in that, that story. And I think sometimes just telling the truth that, and this is, this is real, and so there's no shame in this, but a lot of times when our life is good, we can become really afraid of how closer contact with God might mess that up. And what yeah. we're really trying to do is kind of you know, do some kind of religious performance, do some do some moral good deeds, do some theological maneuvers to say, okay, now, you know, now I've appeased you, God, leave me alone. And yeah. because we're afraid of how God might disrupt that. But, but the reality is, you know, we're all called to new life in Jesus. And new life doesn't mean, you know, destroying and dismantling your old life necessarily. Sometimes it does. But sometimes it does, but not always. Right. But a lot of times it might just mean that you wear, you you perform in the same roles, you wear the same hats, but you experience them differently. And, and more often than not, what I'm discovering in a lot of people that I have the pleasure of being in relationship with um, at Dorita Church is that it looks like correction. I, I thought this way. I thought mm-hmm. this was the truth. And as I walk with Jesus, as I encounter his word, I think, oh no, my thinking about this was wrong. I need to think this way and not that way. Mm-hmm. And, and even that is really, really challenging. But the good news is the second story, if it comes from God, is always yes. better than the first. Yes. I mean, it's always better. Yes. It just always is better. Even if that's not something that, you know, the culture would believe mm-hmm. that's something that the person experiencing yes. it. One of the will things I, to. one of my refrains at Dorita Church is uh, both for us as individuals and as a congregation is that with Jesus, our best days are always ahead of us. Mm-hmm. Our best days mm-hmm. are always ahead mm-hmm. of us. Yep. Well, I think that's good. All right. This was a long period of astonishment we've had today. <laughs> we need to move oh, along. Yeah. Uh, so, we, what are you thinking about? We are both thinking about. I'm thinking about. Kirk Franklin and his beef. I am also with, thinking about Kirk, but a different Kirk. Different Kirk. Okay, but you first. Kirk Franklin and his beef with um, uh, the Dove Awards. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Kirk Franklin is a, a gospel artist. Um, he's been around, gosh, I remember him in the 80s. Uh, I remember mm-hmm. uh, his first big hit was Stomp. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was in seminary, and I remember introducing that 
to um, the youth group. I was an intern at a church in Louisville, Kentucky. Shawnee Pres. Shawnee Presbyterian Church on 42nd Street. Wonderful people. And uh, young people loved that song. And the older people were like, is this Christian music? Because it was very um, hip-hop-ish. And uh, so Kirk's been <laughs> <Sorry>. around. <laughs> Can I just say, there is nothing less... Hip hopish, the, the word hip hopish. Can't let it pass. Sorry. Listen, Continue. I'm, mid- I'm middle aged now, so you oh, know. Okay. I, I I left cool a long time ago. Mm, okay. So, Kirk Franklin's been a, uh, around a long time, and um, at the Dove Awards, which it's kind of like the you can call it the Christian Grammys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, last month, uh, October, uh, he was given an award for Best Gospel Artist. I believe that was the award. And during his acceptance speech, he mentioned um, uh, Tatiana Jefferson and the, her, mm-hmm. her death uh, by the hands of the police officer. And he, asked, mm-hmm. he asked for um, prayer. And uh, not only for her, but her nephew, and uh, I believe also for the uh, uh, family of the officer. And um, and it was a beautiful moment. And he said he felt like, as both um, a follower of Jesus and African-American man, he had to say something. But when his acceptance speech was aired on TBN, it was edited out. That moment was edited that out. Not moment, his whole speech. Not the just whole that, speech. That, that, that part. part of it. Yeah. Now, <laughs> that was not good. But what made it so painful was that the same thing happened several years ago, mm-hmm. right? So I think it was about three years ago he mentioned another uh, police shooting of African Americans. Uh, he also mentioned the uh, shooting, uh, the, the the death of a, a white uh, police officer in Dallas, and called for prayer. And that also was Mm -hmm. edited out. And so recently, uh, Kirk Franklin said, you know what? I've had enough as a follower of Jesus, as an African-American man. I feel like I need to speak out about this. And I am no longer going to attend uh, the uh, Dove Awards. And uh, just recently, uh, the um, hip-hop artist, Christian hip-hop artist Lecrae, has joined him Mm -hmm. in that. And... You know, for a long time, personally, I've been, um, well, I have seen networks like TBN and Daystar, and there's a third one that I can't think of, as uh, spiritually unhealthy. Mm-hmm. They air so many programs. Um, they, they call Christian, but they're just not good. Um, I, I think they often promote a a twisted prosperity gospel. Mm -hmm. I think they have a way of using, um, I won't say a primarily, but um, uh, uh, an an African-American audience um, who often uh, tunes into those networks, and I, I I tell people a lot, there I don't see much good on on Mm -hmm. TBN. Well, and they use African American Christians and Christian artists as props, right? Mm-hmm. Like they want Lecrae and they want Kirk Franklin to be part of the Dove Awards. They want their black bodies so they can say we're not racist yeah. and we honor black people. But when they try to speak as a black man about these are the things that I need prayer about, 
we edit that out because it's too political. And that's not, I mean, that's not right. That's just not right. I mean, the reality is we are people who are called um, to do justice and to name truth and who understand that our battle is not with people, but is with um, principalities and systems. And when he names a system, no matter how uncomfortable that might make people, it needs to stay named or else (laughs) they need to just be honest and say, we don't want you talking about things that affect black people, but not white people. And the faith is about more than making nice people Mm -hmm. who never cause problems, right? Mm -hmm. It is about truth. You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Right, and you and cannot, sometimes the truth is painful. Right, and you can't and overcome a system if you don't name it. Yeah. And so yeah. I think for a lot of a lot of people, you know, they don't they don't feel oppressed by certain entrenched systems. And so when they're named, it just feels political or it feels devi- divisive yeah. because in their reality, it's not a threat. But if it is a threat to yeah. you, then it's not divisive to name it. It's liberating. And even the way I described Franklin plays into it, right? So for years, I've noticed that when I go into a store <laughs> back in the day when you like bought CDs and mm-hmm. tapes, right? So there would be a section called Contemporary Christian and another section called Gospel, mm-hmm. which is code language, right? right. So Contemporary Christian white. was always the white artist and Gospel always meant the black artist. And the reality is, all the music is Christian and gospel. Well, and I would say also theologically, the black artists got a much better label, right? Way <laughs> better to be labeled gospel than yeah. contemporary. But um, so that's the Kirk I'm thinking about, mm-hmm. and um, I'm I'm wondering um, who else is going to join him because there are I mean there are a lot of large, powerful historically African-American congregations and, and and preachers. And I'm wondering if they are going to stand with him. Um, I know the only one that I know probably will or probably already has is Tony Evans, Oak Cliff Bible Church in Dallas. Um, and I think he is Kirk Franklin's pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the only one that um, I'm aware of. Yeah. I think it's great. I mean, I think sometimes there will be a cost to talking about, um, you know, police brutality at the Dove Awards. I mean, they're right. It will cost them something. But not talking about it needs to cost something, too, so that they can make an honest choice based on the values of the gospel and not just... I think what's challenging for me, what's hard for me, what's painful, that's the word I'm looking for, what's painful for me is that... Friendship and relationship and being together, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, for me, means at some level, we have to be able to talk about hard issues. Correct. And if I can't, uh, you know, one of the things I like about our friendship is that I feel like I can trust you with hard things that might in the moment hurt your feelings and um, you might very well be tempted to get really defensive. Mm-hmm. If you do, I trust that you, you will catch yourself, mm-hmm. right, and say, okay, wait a minute, I need to listen to this as hard as it is for me to mm-hmm. hear. Um, 
And I, I am disappointed that there's so many, there's so many in the evangelical community, the white evangelical community, that just can't hear us, that just can't hear um, our experience Mm -hmm. uh, without shutting it down, putting fingers in both ears. Mm -hmm. um, Because if you're really friends with someone and someone comes and says, I need to talk about this, this matters to me, this is painful to me, then hearing that truth might be really painful, it might be really challenging. And so then it comes back down to, well, how authentically do you want to be this person's friend? Because if I really want to be someone's friend, then even if this thing that's painful to them isn't painful to me, I still care because it's painful to them and I care about them. And so that's the thing, like Kirk Franklin I mean, to the extent that you can have a friendship with an institution, I mean, he's been in relationship with that media for a, for long, a long time. time. A so long it's not time. like he walked in year one and said, you don't do this, I'm out. He's been in there for a long time. And that's why he's saying like the first time, okay, but the second time, I need you to know for our relationship to continue, you have to you have to be willing to at least listen mm-hmm. and allow, yeah. So I'm, And they have issued recently a, an apology, but they did that the... First time as right, well. Right, right, Yeah, I mean, there needs to be... I mean, there are things that you could do with an apology that signaled real repentance in, in, in a sense of not like beat yourself with a hair shirt, but to say, hey, here's, here's a program we're going to air about racial justice, or yeah. here's something we're going to air about like the history of lynching in the South, or I mean, whatever, to, to help people understand why this matters. And I mean, that's why... As limited as it was when the whole thing blew up with Starbucks and the two customers being arrested, the two black men being arrested in Starbucks, what was great for me about that was that Howard Schultz not just said, I'm sorry, this was wrong, but said, I'm shutting all these stores down. We're creating a curriculum to do something about bias with our employees. Was it a perfect response? No. Was it an actual response? Yes. And so I feel like when I see um, responses like that, you want to encourage that and you want to celebrate that because you see other, you know, corporate speak of these aren't our values. We're sorry. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean anything if there's not an action that yeah. goes along with it. And it doesn't have to be a perfect action. But right. but we we have to see that this too is a gospel issue. Correct. And I am so concerned. One of the things that, you know, there are not a lot of things that keep me up at night, but one of the things that does keep me up at night is our current moment of, you know, those on the right, those who call themselves conservatives, they have a certain filter when it comes to the faith, and they only see certain things as gospel issues. Mm-hmm. And then those on the, the, the left who call themselves progressives only see certain other things, Correct. different yes. things as gospel issues. And these groups are not talking to each other. And as someone who really tries, I mean, I really try to um, let the text, let the mm-hmm. faith speak for itself and, and to and to be in a posture of, my attitude when I come to the text is, if, if I disagree with what the text says, either I'm wrong or I'm or I don't understand what the text is saying. Correct, yes. And so I try really hard to let the text correct my thinking, which means that when I speak, when I take a stand on an issue, sometimes I'm a little to the right, and sometimes I'm a little to the left mm-hmm. because I'm trying to be faithful to mm-hmm. the faith, faithful to Jesus. 
And I just see these two groups both saying, we follow Jesus, that are blinded by their own um, identity in terms of their their ideology. Thank you. Yes. So. What are you thinking about? What what the, the Kirk? What, what what Kirk are you thinking about? Because the so only Kirk just, I know is Kirk Franklin. No, what, I mean, what so here's the deep irony. So last week, and we talked about it. I was in Louisville, and um, was given the really um, sort of uncomfortable honor of um, preaching at a Reformation Day worship service, which um, and it was uncomfortable only in the sense that this roundtable that I was a part of was. Um, populated by people who were very, very qualified and equipped to preach. And so it was uncomfortable to be (laughs) like, anyway, whatever. Um, And as a part of that, I mean, a a part of that moment, just to what we were saying before about sort of trying to be really faithful in my relationship with the institution that God has called me to serve through a local church Um, and to say, if someone invites you to come and preach a word, then you want to, as much as you can, be as honest as you can about what the text says and also what you think the Holy Spirit is calling you to proclaim to that particular body in that particular moment. And so I worked really hard to like wrestle with my ego and everything else just to really be honest about, I, I have this invitation to say what I think to the leaders of this mm. denomination that I serve. And so I'm trying to do that. Anyway, at one point in the sermon, I was the, the big idea of the sermon was to say it was a Reformation Day service, and I was saying, look, the body of Christ is not divided, and our denomination is. Our denomination is a 90% Caucasian, like 90% of our churches are homogenous Caucasian congregations. And that's a huge problem. It's not biblical. It's not faithful to the tradition. The first churches were not segregated by ethnicity or race. That was one of the huge ways that people discovered what it meant to be a part of the body of Christ is when they were navigating these cultural differences and being called to be in relationship with one another in ways that threatened their identity and their first story, yeah. right? Create, you That's know, good. right? So I was I was talking about that and I was talking about like why, why are our churches segregated by race when Presbyterians have a lot of problems, but stupid isn't one of them. Like we know the text, we know the text. So we know this isn't right. And yet we live in this reality that is not faithful and we, and we just, we can't even address it. And I was saying, you know, when we talk about this a lot, sometimes we love the culture of the institution that introduced us to Christ more or even, and Jesus, right? And so when the culture of the institution that introduces you to Christ is white, which for white people, we don't even see white culture because we just think it's reality, right? But when it's white, and I was talking about like, what is what does that look like in the Presbyterian church? It looks like we play bagpipes all the time at gatherings. Oy. We love bow ties, like preachers got to wear a bow tie, which is awkward if you're a woman. Although I see women Presbyterian <laughs> preachers do it. And I said, we love the word Kirk, and Kirk um, is 
not an English word. It is the Scottish word for church. But in our denomination, we call things Kirk. So our campus ministry has been rebranded across the country to be U Kirk, meaning University Kirk. And we have conferences for small churches that we call We Kirk. And we've already talked about the Kirking of the Tartans. We have this... (laughs) what I said, pathological preference for the word Kirk, which is so white, it's not even in English, right? And it drives me crazy. And then to my point, they had written this this news story about the worship service, and they quoted part of that line about the word Kirk. And my friend Rachel, who serves as the ministry coordinator at the Grove, who is a devout evangelical Christian and who works as the ministry church culture of my church, was like reading the article and she was like, Kate, what are you talking about? Kirk Franklin isn't white. Because when she saw the word Kirk, the only thing she could think was it was the Kirk controversy about Kirk Franklin that you were talking about because this is the thing. Nobody knows what the heck a Kirk is unless they're already part of the Presbyterian Church. And we act like that's a small thing, but those are like the tiny hidden dog whistles that prevent their stumbling blocks or signals that say, this is not for you. If you're not one of us, you're not one of us. And we act like, well, this is fine. Anybody can learn what the word Kirk means. But people, I mean, people don't want to learn a culture that is not is not theirs. Do they want to yeah. learn Jesus? Yes. yes. But do I have to sort of assimilate into white American culture to be part of your church? Yeah. Thanks, but no thanks. And so when it comes to deciding what do you love more, do you love being a part of a club where we all know this insider cool word that we think Kirk sounds cooler than church, which is, you know, debatable, mm-hmm. but like maybe, maybe that's true. But if it is true, do you love it more than the opportunity to be church with people of color? Take your pick, but you can't have both. You just can't. And so anyway, that just but it was so funny and ironic that even the living it out yeah. in the article just reinforces the fact that we might think it shouldn't function that way, but it does function that way. So the question is, do we want to do something about it or not? And that is why I actually am thinking about the word Kirk, well. but a different Kirk. White people Kirk, which is... Kirk. Well, and it's... You know, we forget our own history, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we think Presbyterian Scotland, and we forget that John Knox traveled... I mean, Presbyterianism isn't particular to Scotland. It wasn't even started in Scotland. John Knox traveled to Switzerland, to Geneva, and learned from Calvin. And it, it's just odd to me well, that I mean, that's so... But I mean, whatever. I just question, there's nothing wrong with being Presbyterian, but there's also nothing not. particularly right about being Presbyterian, because we're not supposed Agreed. to be trying to make people Presbyterians. Agreed. We're supposed to be making people disciples of Jesus Agreed. Christ. Right? And so, I mean, this is, we just, I mean, and you've served a church where we talked about this a lot, a really really old church in Charlotte, a pre-revolutionary war church in Charlotte that really prized their history, meaning the history of their local congregation, and they had a historical room, which, spoiler alert, anytime you walk into a church and there's a history room, that church has got a problem. Well, it makes the, it turns the church into a museum, not the, and not an outpost 
of the of the kingdom. Well, I'm just saying when you walk into that history room, it's not a history of the ancient Near East, right? Well. It's not a history of Palestine. My problem is it's the wrong history. Like if you were it's trying, it's a limited history. It's the local particular yeah. history of the people who are in charge of this particular church. And we're not, as we've said at the beginning, we're not supposed to have an. Our primary relationship is not supposed to be with our local church, with our local institution. It's supposed Agreed. to be with Jesus. Yeah. And so it's the wrong history. That's my problem. Everybody's in love with the wrong history. Not everybody. Not everybody. Not everybody. I know that no one's listening to this podcast, but don't send me letters. Not everyone. Anyway, that's what I'm thinking about. What are you preaching on this week? Oh, this Sunday, uh, we are concluding a series on um, emotions that um, hinder, block, uh, joy. And uh, so this week we're looking at self-pity. Uh, that place in, I can't remember if it's First or Second Timothy, I should remember, uh, where uh, Paul says that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of, sound, of a sound mind. And Paul tells Timothy to um, fan into flame uh, the, the gift uh, that's been uh, given to him. And um, one of the things I want to deal with is, you know, it, it's it's been said that, you know, Timothy is kind of a timid personality. And when you are in a quote-unquote small church, uh, there's a a tendency to say, oh, we're just, emphasis on the word just, a small church, and to uh, see yourself as um, not important, and then to fall into the quicksand of comparison. If we only had the resources of that Mm -hmm. church, if we only had the number of people that church has, and it's it becomes very easy both as pastor and people to begin to wallow into self-pity. And so uh, this we can say, no, 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 no. He's not, uh, God's not given us uh, that kind of a spirit, but of power, mm-hmm. love, and of self-control or sound mind. And so that's what we're, we're preaching this Sunday. Mm-hmm. Well, we are also, we're in a whole series in November about the um, holiness of small things. And Which so- I Love. Yeah, and it's interesting. Sometimes when you're halfway through a series, you kind of see the big idea that's underneath the, like you thought it was about one thing, and it is, but it's also about something else. And I think as I'm, this is week two, and I'm realizing that really, I mean, to your point, we have this understanding of the word small that's really based on the culture's understanding of small, right? That big is always better, and rich is always better, and you know, known is always better. And and that's true in a consumer capitalist empire culture. But if you look at scripture, if you let the text be the lens through which you view reality, then you realize again Imagine and that. again and again. I know. <laughs> shocking. Um, again and again and again and again in the not just the gospels, but in the whole story of God, it's a story of God choosing what is small, choosing what is obscure, choosing what is weak, choosing what is unknown, and then using that to accomplish God's purposes in a way that makes it clear that it's God yes. and not the not institution us. or the person or the a nation. And so we we don't get that. And so we 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 do self-evaluation through the lens of the culture. And that's why we think automatically that any ministry, any church that's bigger or richer is more faithful. Which I mean maybe it is, but maybe it isn't, right? And and I'm realizing like decolonizing pedagogy is like a really um it's a helpful idea that's kind of popping up in a lot of different places. And I'm realizing like, oh, that's what this is really about, is helping people understand that there's a part of sort of the ideology of the 
culture, which I mean, in the in you know with the with the freeing of the Hebrew slaves that started the story of God and God's people. That's Egyptian culture in Jesus's days. It's the Roman culture in Roman Empire culture in our day. It's the American Empire culture, and it's be able to say that the the gospel is always coming in not to replicate that, mm-hmm. but to provide an alternative to that. It's not even against it. It's just that is what is passing away, and the culture of the kingdom is radically different. And so being able to understand that power looks different in the kingdom, size mm. looks different in the kingdom, abundance looks mm. different in the kingdom. Um, and so I've just you know preached about that last week, sort of starting with a confessional sense that I have trouble with the word small because... There's just part of my mind that is still colonized, that mm-hmm. is still trying to do something that the culture will look at and go, oh, that's great. When the reality is that's not my job. My job is to open myself up so the Holy Spirit can work through me so that we can be a community that becomes an outpost of the kingdom of God, which will be a stumbling block and a burning bush and will not reinforce the dominant narrative of the of the culture. It's transforming it. And so... Anyway, uh, this week we're doing um, Elijah and the widow's oil and just talking about what does it mean when it's not just about you think you're small, but when you're when what you have is small and it's running out, right? Mm. And that's, you know, the widow Elijah comes and asks for hospitality and um, she says, you know, I just have a little bit left and I'm about to go use the last of what I have um, and then my son and I are just going to go go and die. And I think, you know, in, when we're trying to see um, ourselves as participating in the kingdom of God and not in the culture of the empire, then it changes the questions that we ask when we're at these decision points, which is not, do I have enough to be faithful anymore? That's not the question. The question is, is this action faithful um, or is it not? And if it's faithful, then then I take it. Um, and the question is um, no longer, you know, can I do this and still take care of myself? But you know, do I trust God to care for me or not? And that, and I, I mean, huge caveat to a world formed by marketplace Christian culture. This is not about saying, send your rent money into the televangelist, right? It's not that. It's not saying if you're faithful, then God will bless you tenfold and you'll become a millionaire. It's not, I mean, the number of people, I mean, bless them sincerely who are like, when I win the lottery, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I'm like, God does not need you to win the lottery to be a faithful participant in the ministry of this church. That does not. Like, you give from a place of faith and trust and obedience with what you have now. With what you have now. That's all that matters, what you have now. And, And, you know, there are times, I think, when we are called to do faithful things with the last little bits of what we have. And the witness of Scripture is always, you know, those are... Not the moments where God says, okay, I'll give you a pass because you're about to run out. I mean, those are the moments where there's real paradigm shifts. Um, so that is what I am going to be preaching on wow. this week. God willing. We're done. I've run out of words. Let's go. If you want to learn more about Yolando's Church, Derrida Presbyterian Church, you can Google it and pop right over to their website. And if you want to learn more about The Grove, we have a brand new website, um, thegrovecharlotte.org. 
the amazing Rachel King, who was mentioned earlier, um, just finished our website overhaul and it's beautiful. And if you want to hear our sermons, and you should definitely hear Yolanda's sermons, you can look on the Podbean web uh, site and look up Derida Church uh, podcast and hear his sermons. And if you want to hear Preaching at the Grove, you can go to iTunes and you look for the Grove Charlotte and you will be connected with all of our messages. And we are really grateful that you all listen, which gives us an excuse to talk. So see you soon.